All right, good morning, church. How we doing? It's great to see you. Uh, hopefully you didn't make the drive to Nashville and back yesterday. Uh, if you're a Tiger fan, you know that the game got canceled. Uh, had some friends that went down there, so I hope that was none of you uh, that made the drive. But uh, it's good to see you this morning. As we begin, I do want to remind you of a few things before we jump into our text. Um, like Reggie said, Christmas is this week. Uh, that's crazy. Uh, Christmas is next or this coming Saturday. So um, just to let you know, we will be meeting uh, for our Christmas Eve service at our East Memphis campus at three o'clock on Friday. We would love for you to attend uh, with your family, your children, uh, extended family. If you've got them coming in town, bring the whole crew. We'd love to have you. The service is designed for everyone from grandparents all the way down to children. Uh, it'll be a family-friendly service, uh, which means it'll be short. There'll be things for the kids and all of that. So we'd love for you to, uh, to have a spiritual moment with your family on Christmas Eve. Uh, we'd love for you to join us at three o'clock at our East Memphis campus. And then we want to let you know not to come here on Sunday. Uh, enjoy have a Merry Christmas on Saturday with your family, and then don't come here on Sunday uh, because we are doing our services online on Sunday. So make sure you tune in at home. Uh, we've recorded the service right here in our lobby uh, about a week ago, so we'd love for you to tune into that and have another moment with your family um, on Sunday morning. So just know that we won't be gathered here in person uh, just to honor you, to honor our staff, to honor our volunteers. Uh, it would be a big ask of us for them to come on Friday and to work and then have one day of Christmas with their families and then turn right back around and show up on Sunday. So uh, we'd love for you to join us at church at home on Sunday. And then lastly, um, I do want to remind you about year in giving. And we don't like to twist anybody's arm around here, so that's not my goal. Um, in fact, in 2 Corinthians 8, uh, Paul says he could go the route of saying he's an apostle, and I'm not saying I'm any of that, okay, so don't hear me. Paul was saying that he could go the route of saying he's an apostle and he could command people to give, but it's, it's enlightening. Instead, he just appeals to God's grace, and he says, in light of the grace of God, who God was rich and he became poor for our sake, um, in light of the gospel, and that's our ask. If the gospel, if the Lord has used this place and this body and this family to bless you with the gospel this year and you're able to make a year in gift, we would love to receive that. Um, that's my pitch. No twisting of the arms. If you're able, please, uh, we would encourage you to do that and love that, um, but no pressure from us. So um, let me pray and then we'll jump in. We typically read our passage, but um, we've got a long chapter this morning. So, um, if you've got your Bible, you can go to 1 Samuel 17, and when you turn there, you'll probably see a familiar heading. Uh, we are looking at the David and Goliath story this morning, um, and it's long, and it's long for a reason, and we'll talk about that after I pray. Um, but go ahead and turn there, 1 Samuel 17, and then uh, instead of reading it together, we'll just roll through it a verse at a time as a church family. So, uh, let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll jump in. Lord. God, I pray that you would use this time uh, to teach us, to edify us, um, to expose our sin and our need for a Savior, and God, ultimately, to point to um, your Son and his finished work. God, the gospel is on every page of this book, if we would have eyes to see it. Um, so help us to see it as we study another one of your names, another one of your attributes, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, in the 1980 Winter Olympics, uh, the Soviet Union had not lost a hockey game in the last four Winter Olympics, 16 years, right? Um, they had not lost a game. They had won the gold medal the last four Olympics. And Herb Brooks, uh, played by Kurt Russell in the movie, Miracle, um, puts together this group of ragamuffin college kids. Doesn't even go to the pros. He thinks there's too much ego there, too much... Uh, pride, all that stuff, gets this group of hungry college kids and teaches them how to play together, um, to put down the college rivalries, all those kind of things, and they get to the Olympics, they lose their first two prelim games, not looking good, and then suddenly they start winning games, and they get to the semifinals, they're playing the Soviet Union, they are down three to two going into the third and final period, and by, they literally call it the miracle on ice. Um, by some miracle, the United States in the third period not only ties the game, but they score to win the game and beat the Soviet Union um, to, do, to beat literally the best hockey team on the globe at that point. 
and uh, go on to beat Finland for the gold medal. And I tell you that story only because when you Google top David and Goliath moments, uh, that comes up as the number one David and Goliath moment in sports history. Um, And you can do this all day long because the story of David and Goliath has become so iconic that we now use it anytime that there's a small person facing a big person, anytime that there's a weak team facing a strong team, anytime the 16 seed is playing the one seed, it's always this epic David and Goliath moment, right? There are so many people in our culture that have heard of this story. It's widespread and it's now become this universal metaphor for any time that somebody small is going against someone strong, but here's the point. Um, That is actually not the point of the text at all. It's not the point. And so many people have missed it, and I don't want us to miss it this morning. It's not the heart of the text. It's not what the author is pointing us to. Um, So I want us to dive into this text so we can see what the point is. And in fact, um, the fact that this passage is so long um, speaks for itself, because the author, um, this is the longest, as far as like landscape in the Bible, this is the longest depiction of a battle in the entire Old Testament. Um, the author goes out of his way um, to give us this story in lots of verses, lots of verses, and to give us lots of details. In fact, we'll see as soon as we start that he spends lots of verses just on Goliath's armor. And he's doing all of this for a purpose because he wants us to enter into the story and feel what the Israelites were feeling. Um, So let's just walk through it together. If you're looking at 1 Samuel 17, um, it says this. It says, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sokal, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokal and Azekah and, yeah, I don't even want to pronounce that, Ephesdemim, and Saul said to the men of Israel, were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle and against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley in between them. So, here's what I need you to see. Um, as soon as Saul was anointed king, Saul had to fight the Amorites. And now we see in 1 Samuel 16, which we'll give you a little glimpse of that in just a second. Um, David has been anointed the next king. He's not king yet. He's young. In fact, we know because the fact that he's not at the battle right now that he was younger than 20 years of uh, 20 years of age in the Old Testament. If you were 20 or older, you were required to go to battle if you were able. So the fact that David's not there means that he was younger than 20. He's a shepherd boy. Um, he's been anointed as king by God through the prophet Samuel. He knows he's going to be the next king. But he's not king yet. Um, He's not at the battle. But as soon as Saul was anointed king, he had to fight the Amorites. As soon as David is anointed king, we see Israel fighting the Philistines. Um, Leaders get tested. We see God testing his men the same way. Um, And the Philistines were known for their fascination with war, uh, with sexual immorality, with their pagan gods. And we see, if you look at those first few verses, where they're camped. The Philistines were Israel's neighbor to the west, And we see, though, that they're camped in Judah, which belonged to Israel. So this is not just somebody, you know, arguing and throwing insults over the fence. Um, This is an invasion. Someone has moved into Israel, and they are there. They've set up camp, and the author wants us to see here. um, There's basically... Philistines are on one hill and they set up their camp. Israel's on the other hill. They've set up their camp and the battle is in the valley in the middle between the two hills. Verse four says this, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span, which just means he was around eight foot, probably eight and a half feet tall. Um, He had a helmet of bronze. I say that like it's a small feet, right? Um, He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze, he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron about 15 pounds, and his shield bearer went before him. Now notice how much detail the author gives there, right? And this is kind of foreign to the Old Testament. You don't read Genesis and it's like an Adam's blonde hair was blowing through the wind and then God said, don't pick from this specific, like we don't see that. But the author is doing this on purpose so that we will feel what the Israelites are feeling. That Goliath in all sense of the term was literally dressed up like a champion. Um, he, had, he was high tech. He had the best 
um, armor available. It was bronze. It was the way to go. It was better than any of these other metals of the day, copper and all those things. Bronze was the way to go. And Goliath is eight and a half feet tall and he is dressed head to toe in bronze, right? Bronze helmet, bronze mail, bronze, you know, plates on his legs, bronze javelin. And then he's got the spear at the end of his javelin is 15 pounds of bronze, right? Like he is literally looking like a hero, a champion. And it's interesting that the word champion actually in the, in the Hebrew um, is a combination of the two words man and between. Um, that he was a man between. And we'll see in just a second that he's about to literally represent all of the Philistines that he was this representative, he was this substitute, he was a man between, he was standing between the enemies and his people. That's what the word champion means. And we see Israel here, they are outmanned, they are outmatched. The author spends three verses talking about the armor of Goliath, literally hyping him up so that we can feel um, the intimidation, we can feel the fear, we can feel all the things that the Israelites were feeling. Um, He spends a lot of time on this, And here's why this is important, though. Because if you remember, probably the most famous verse that comes out of 1 Samuel 16 is when um, David's father, Jesse, starts bringing his sons in before Samuel to pick the king. What does God say? He says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks where? At the heart, right? And what do we see? The very next chapter, we see the author hyping up Goliath's what? His outward appearance. And it's, it, we see it already. It's a direct contrast from what we've just learned, that the purposes of the Lord prevails and that he's not looking at our outward appearance, he's looking at the heart. And we see Goliath struts into the battle and all we're focused on is his outward appearance from head to toe. Eight and a half feet tall, he's literally a giant, he's wearing bronze head to toe and he's a champion. Focused on the outward appearance. And then it says this, verse eight, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel. This day, give me, a man that was, that, give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, this wasn't like super common in ancient warfare. Um, we know that from the Iliad that uh, Achilles and Hector fought this way, that they both represented um, their nations. If you've seen the movie Troy, um, at the beginning, same way, um, Troy Uh, not Troy, Achilles played by Brad Pitt struts out there. Uh, Actually, he wakes up from his sleep and he has to like scurry to the battle um, because Boagrius, this big giant, is is essentially David and Goliath, except, um, you know, Achilles was not nearly as humble and as contrite as David was. Um, But we see little glimpses of this in ancient warfare. Um, But every now and then, sometimes it wasn't super common. In fact, I would argue that it was a very efficient way uh, to have a battle. Uh, You know, one person dies as opposed to hundreds and hundreds of people. You bring out your best man, I'll bring out my best man, they'll duke it out, and they will represent the nation. And their fate determines the fate of the nation. And you see Saul describe this to the Israelites, not Saul, um, Goliath. Goliath describes this to the Israelites and he says, hey, you bring out your champion and he defies the ranks of Israel. Um, That word defy means to heap shame upon. Um, It was a lot more serious than we see in our English language. Um, But he's out there cursing Israel. He's defying them. He's slandering them day and night. We'll see for 40 days he's doing this. Just bring on your champion. Bring out one person and let's settle this. You bring your best. I'm our best. Goliath just taunting Israel, and whoever wins will determine the fate of that nation. Either Israel will win, and the Philistines will be servants of Israel, or Goliath will win, and Israel will be slaves to the Philistines. He sets the terms. But then, the author, and I do want to say this, though, because I mentioned Saul. Um, This is Saul's moment. This is where Saul was supposed to step up. 
He was the king of Israel. Um, in fact, the scriptures describe him as head and shoulders taller than others. He was tall, he was strong, he was attractive in appearance. In fact, Saul was the people's choice to be king. Um, God, when he established the kingship, he allowed the people to choose their own king and they looked at the outward appearance and picked Saul. He was strong, he was tall, he was handsome, he was burly, he was ready to fight and you see Saul nowhere yet. He's afraid, just like the rest of his people. This was his moment to step up and he doesn't and then the writer shifts our gaze in verse 12. It says this, now David was the son of an... Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three, that's a nice way to say he was old. He was advanced in years. Uh, the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So this is where we see that David wasn't at the battle. His three oldest brothers were, which means David was younger than 20. Um, if you were older than 20, you had to go fight. And you see Goliath repeatedly for 40 days. He would go out as the armies would go home at night on the hill to camp out and to sleep. They would show up to the battlefield in the morning. Goliath would walk out and give his taunting, his slander, his cursing at Israel, and no one would show up for 40 days. And we see Saul, verse 15, Saul's afraid, just like his people. And then it says in 17, and Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an epaph um, of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to camp to your brothers. And take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token for them. So look at what's going on here. David wasn't even supposed to be there. David is on a cheese run, right? Like he's, he's literally delivering cheese and bread. Like he's Uber Eats right now and he shows up to the battle. He doesn't show up as a soldier. He arrives as a servant, which will be key. And he certainly... Didn't expect to fight, and he's not how anyone would have expected him to show up, right? It's not like David showed up and he knew, okay, this is the shepherd's turn. Like, all skate, like, I need all the shepherds on the dance. Like, it wasn't anything like that. He's showing up and he's obeying his father. He's serving his brothers, and his dad asked him, like, hey, bring something to I know that you're, bring something home so I know your brothers are okay. Verse 19, now Saul and they, and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper. Now here's what I want you to see. In the Hebrew language, we see this a lot in the book of Jonah. Um, one of the ways that the author communicates really important things in Hebrew is he uses wordplay. And he repeats things. Um, he uses symmetry. Um, he does a lot of things in the Hebrew language. Um, but one of the things we see here is this repetition of David leaving things behind that he leaves his sheep, that he leaves his things when he gets to the camp. And you see David divesting himself of his things as he approaches the battle, which will be important in a little while. But it says, David rose early in the morning. He left his sheep with a keeper and took provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And here he is again, David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage. So he's just shedding things as he shows up and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And then the author throws in a phrase at the end that changes the game. And it's, but it says, and this time, David heard him. So the shepherd boy shows up, he hears the taunting, he hears the slander. We see him shedding things as he shows up. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So Goliath shows up 40 days in a row, daily in the morning, Goliath starts taunting and the men flee. Nobody wants to face him. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? 
Surely he has come up to defy Israel, talking about Goliath. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So you start to see, as Goliath shows up day after day, the reward for his defeat increases. And at this point, the reward is King Saul will give the victor, his daughter, you will essentially become a part of the king's household. All of the king's possessions will be yours now by marriage. All of those kind of things. The reward is great. And it says this in verse 26. And David said to the man who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? So David shows up. He starts hearing these rumors. And he's like, so what's going to happen if somebody defeats this guy? And then he says this. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so it shall be done to the man who kills him. So they tell him the reward, but I want you to see David's sentence. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see Saul looking at this equation, looking at this battle, looking at this standoff based on the outward appearance, based on our human abilities based on the flesh. And you see David give a theological lens to Israel's problems. Who is this man? Like, do you guys not remember what God did for us in Egypt when he literally, without us lifting a single finger or a weapon, wiped out the entire Egyptian army with one swoop? Who is this chump thinking he can show up and taunt us and curse the God of Israel and defy his armies? Like, who does this guy think he is? And you see David respond like no one else has. Why are we letting this happen? Like, why hasn't anyone done something about this? You see the cheese guy show up and he's like, does anybody hear this? Anybody hear what's going on? And they've heard it for 40 days in a row. But what is David looking at this problem through? He's looking at it through a theological lens of, oh, no, 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 you don't do this. The God of Israel has promised us land. He's promised us he would protect us. He's promised that he would defend us. He's defended us before, and he will defend us again. He is not gonna let these Philistines come and invade our own land. And you see David respond not looking at the outward appearance, but he's looking at this problem with faith. Like, this isn't gonna happen. And you see the reward. And this is where a lot of people don't go. And I wanna go here for a second um, and we mentioned this as we started the message, but um, so many people read this story like 1 Samuel 16 never happened. Um, we have to remember as we approach this story that 1 Samuel 16 happened and David was awake and he remembered it um, when literally he was called from the shepherd fields to come into his father's house and his brothers had been paraded by Samuel, the prophet of God, to pick the next king, and God literally chose David. And David heard him, and David saw through the prophet Samuel that he was going to be chosen to be the next king. He knew that. So he had a word from God, he had a promise from God that he would be the next king. So you see David, and we'll see as we read this, he's not putting any confidence in his flesh and his slingshot abilities or anything like that. All of his focus and all of his confidence is in the Lord. No, God's made a promise. Like, I, I literally heard it. Like, he's promised that I'm gonna be the next king of Israel. So he steps on up. But here's why so many people don't go here and don't remember that and don't talk about that. And we know that some time has passed because if you read 1 Samuel 16, and we're not going to for the sake of time, it ends with David actually still not being king yet. He's been anointed as the next king, and he actually becomes a servant of Saul and an armor bearer. So he worked for Saul. Like Saul knew who he was. But we see after this battle, David's clearly not working for Saul anymore by the time chapter 17 arrives. And we see at the end of the battle, Saul has to go and investigate, like, who is this guy? Who's this kid? So Saul has clearly forgotten who he is. So we know some time has passed between chapter 16 and chapter 17. But David was not unconscious. He was not asleep. Like he remembers that he's been anointed as the next king of Israel by God himself. He's been promised that he would be king. But so many preachers and teachers and pastors don't go here because as soon as we go here, it removes any ability for us to insert ourselves as David in the story. 
Because last time I checked, you and I, neither of us were anointed the next king of Israel, right? And if we go here and we talk about the promise that God specifically made David and no one else, then it removes our ability to insert ourselves as David in the story. And we'll talk about um, all the wrong ways we do that in just a minute. But David was given a specific promise of God. He is not banking on his own skills. He's a shepherd boy. He's younger than 20. He's scrawny. He's used to dealing with sheep. We'll see that he's had some experience in just a second. But he's been given a promise by Yahweh himself. Hey, you're gonna be the next king. So David shows up knowing that God's going to make him the next king. He will protect him. He will defend him. He's the God of the armies of Israel who this guy, this Goliath, is slandering and cursing. And he shows up. We know some time has passed. And then we're gonna skip once again for the sake of time, um, verses 28 through 30. And there's nothing that we're hiding there. Um, you can read through it if you want to. Essentially, what's happening here is David's brother Eliab is accusing David of having wrong mo uh, motives. And he essentially says, you came down to this battle just so you could watch us die. You, you literally just, you came all the way here just so you could watch your brothers die. Um, and David doesn't really respond. He basically, in the the phrase is hard to translate, but he's like, I just asked a question, is essentially what he says. I just gave one word. Um, Eliab doesn't know that his dad, David's dad, sent him, both of their dads, sent him to the battle. Um, and I think the only reason that that is here is because the author, the writer, is trying to contrast who was supposed to be king, right? Eliab was the first son that Samuel brought through before God to pick as the next king versus who actually, who God chose to be king, right? Here's the guy that man would have chosen. He was the oldest son, he was the firstborn son, and now he's accusing his own brother of having motives to watch them die. And you see God's man, who he chose, has faith and is trusting in the promises of God. And I think that paragraph is thrown in there so the author can contrast who we would have chosen versus who God chose, once again. Um, but for the sake of time, we won't unpack it. Um, Verse uh, 31, it says this. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. So you see David asking like, who in the world is this? And what's going on? And the words get repeated to Saul and Saul sends for David. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight. So you see David decide, hey, I'm going to go and fight. We're not doing this anymore. And David was fully aware of what he was getting into. Like I said, he didn't just stumble in and think it was the shepherd's turn to fight. He knew he had nothing with him but some bread and some cheese, which he'd already dropped off. It's him by himself. He's got a shepherd's staff. He's got a sling. Picks up some stones along the way, as we're about to see. But his full confidence and trust is not in his own abilities, not in his own appearance, but it is in the God that he serves the God that's made him a promise, the God that has protected Israel in the past and will protect Israel now. That's where his hope is, that's where his trust is. But we see this, he says, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. And you see the contrast right here. Man's choice of a king, afraid, discouraging someone that's willing to fight, saying you can't do this, should be fighting. He's tall in appearance, he's tall in stature, he's strong, his armor actually fits him. And then you see David, unprepared, no armor, shepherd boy, shows up, but complete and total confidence in the God of Israel, in Yahweh. And that's all he needs. He says, I'll fight. And you see this contrast. The author sandwiches them together so we can see the one who should be fighting, who should be the champion, who should be Israel's representative versus the one who will be the champion and will be Israel's representative. They're right there together having this conversation. And clearly, Saul doesn't want David to go, but David is determined to go. He knew exactly what he was walking into. In uh, verse 34, it says, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, <clears throat> 
And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. You see David show and share with us new information um, that God has prepared him in the wilderness. That David has fought battles in the wilderness and those battles in the wilderness have prepared him for this battle with Goliath. I fought bears, I fought lions, I killed them. And you see God preparing this man in the wilderness and God, just like he did his own son, just like he often does us, prepares us in the wilderness, uses, leverages our our seasons of of dryness and weariness, of struggle, to produce something in us, to conform us to the image of his son, to prepare us for things coming. But you see God has prepared David and he says, I've struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. This guy is just another animal that I'm about to strike down. And he said this, and look who's going to do the delivering. Verse 37, and David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Notice doesn't say, David doesn't say, my slingshot skills will deliver me. I'm short and I'm quick and that's gonna deliver me. You know, I'm gonna introduce Goliath to long range weapons and that's going to deliver me. He doesn't say any of that. What does he say? This man has defied the armies of the living God and that living God, Yahweh himself, the Lord, Elohim, he will deliver me from his hand and he will deliver him into my hand. And Saul, got no argument left, says go and the Lord will be with you. Verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Now I want you to see this. We see this foreshadowing of David who will one day be the king of Israel wearing the king's armor. And he's young, so it doesn't fit. And you could probably imagine he tried to swing that big thing and take a few steps and he was like, this is not gonna work. So what do, we, what do we see him do? We see him shedding the king's armor, leaving more things behind as he goes into battle. He tries for a minute, it says in vain he tried. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now these stones uh, weren't rocks. Um, most commentators believe that these were the size of tennis balls. Uh, So you can imagine a tennis ball-sized stone um, can do some damage. Um, And so many people, uh, the sling and the stone was like a very, very effective way to fight. Um, It it wasn't, the focus isn't on the the instrument. Um, The focus is on Yahweh doing the victory. But this was actually a, I mean, if you could get skilled in those days with a sling and a stone, you could do some damage. And you see David grab his sling, grab his stone after he shed the king's armor. We see this foreshadowing of who would one day be the king of Israel, sheds that stuff off, grabs his instruments, grabs his weapons, and he's headed to battle. Verse 41, and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with a shield bearer in front of him. Now the author throws that in on purpose, right? We see the pride of Goliath. He is standing on the battlefield and he's not even holding his shield. Someone else is. And if you've ever watched Star Trek, you know you don't go in with your shields down, right? Goliath's fatal flaw right here. The author tells us his shield bearer is holding his shield in front of him. When the Philistines looked and saw David, when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And you can imagine if David's already upset that he's slandering, that he's cursing the God of Israel, you see him curse David directly by his little G gods, his pagan gods. 
The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. So Goliath's pride is in his appearance. He curses David. David's, David is about to respond. Goliath's kind of said his terms. Am I a dog that you'd come at me with a stick and some stones, right? And here's what I want you to see as we move into the actual battle is David's speech is three verses long and you see Goliath fall in two verses. And the author is showing us um, that the battle is not the point. The speech is the point. What David says, the speech is longer than the battle. And what David says is more important than what actually happens. And it says this, let's look at what he says. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. And I, I love that because David's literally like defining reality in front of him. He's like, hey, you come at me with good weaponry, right? A sword decked out in bronze, a spear, a javelin. Like David knew what he was getting into, right? He wasn't naive. He, oh man, dang, I thought this was the shepherd's turn. You don't see any of that. He knew exactly what he's getting into. You come to me with this and this and this, but I come to you. Do you see the contrast that the author's making right there? You come to me with these things, I come to you with what? In the name of the Lord of hosts, in the name of Jehovah Sabah, which means the Lord of hosts. The word host there in Hebrew is armies, warriors, Right, All throughout the Old Testament, we see God described as the Lord of hosts, the God of hosts who can rain down angels and armies of angels at any point that he wanted to. Jesus in the New Testament says he could call for a legion of angels to come down and assist him at any point that he wanted to, but he abstains and he endures what he's supposed to endure himself. Jehovah Sabah. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord of warriors. And what David is saying here is no, no, no. It's not that I misunderstand what you have. It's that you misunderstand what I have. You show up with earthly weapons, bronze, spear, sword. I show up with the God of angel armies. I show up with Yahweh. Jehovah Sabah, the Lord of hosts. I show up with the one who literally could strike you down before I even pick up a stone. It's not that I've misunderstood you, it's that you've misunderstood me. This is what David's saying. And then he says this, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabah, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And here's why. Listen to what he says. That all the earth may know that David is a good warrior. That all the earth will know that slingshots are better than swords. No. What does he say? that all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. That's why. This is why he's confident in the fact that Yahweh will defend him and protect him and give him victory today. He knows this, why? Because God's made him a promise. God's proved his faithfulness in the past. He will prove his faithfulness today. And why? All throughout the Old Testament, you see God defeating his enemies. You see God raising up victory in Israel, why? so that he will establish himself as the God of Israel. Yahweh, the one true God. In a culture where there were pagan gods all over the place, all throughout the Old Testament, you see Yahweh establishing himself as the one and only true God. And David knows that and he says he's going to do it again today. He's going to give you over I will strike you down, I will cut off your head. So he says that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel in verse 47 and that all of this assembly may know that the Lord saves. The Lord saves, not with sword and with spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand so that everyone will know there's a God in Israel and everyone will know that the Lord saves that he protects his children. He protects those and he saves those who have faith in him, who take refuge in him, who put their hope in his promises, that he will save. And God does not save them with a sword and a spear. He saves them with a rock, with a stone. And David 
fully confident, not in his own abilities. All throughout this text, we've seen David divest himself of anything that would give him any pride, any confidence in his flesh. He knows the Lord will deliver so that the Lord will establish that there's one Lord and it's the God of Israel and that the Lord saves. You see his eyes are up, his confidence is in God, not in his own abilities. And then it says this, verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Two verses, Goliath is down, right? And I want you to see the progression in the Hebrew language. We see the stone hits him on the forehead and then we see it sinks into his forehead and then we see Goliath fall on his head, right? Fell face to the ground. What did he fall on? His forehead. We see the progression. He was hit and then it went into and then he fell on his head. Like complete and total victory. And at this point, the author hasn't told us whether or not Goliath is actually dead or he's unconscious or he's barely hanging on. So it says this in verse 49, I already read verse 49. Uh, Verse 50, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it, just as David said he would. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So David goes, he's got no sword, Like we said, he's divested himself of everything, of armor, of weapons. He grabs Goliath's own sword as he's laying on the ground and removes his head and you see the champion of the Philistines has been defeated by the champion of Israel. All of the Philistines flee and then David keeps the head. Um, We're gonna skip down just so we can talk about what do we do with this passage. But if you read verse 54, it says this, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. So David was the victor, he was the champion, he defeated their champion, he got to keep Goliath's sword, which will come up in future stories in the Old Testament when David is king. He got to keep Goliath's armor, which I guess is a trophy because David could never wear it, he wasn't eight feet tall, uh, but it must be nice on the trophy case, right? Um, but he keeps his armor, but then he takes Goliath's head. Um, There's a few more verses in this chapter where he's talking to Saul with Goliath's head in his hands, which is kind of graphic and weird, Uh, but it ends up taking his head to Jerusalem. And what's interesting is that Jerusalem at this point in time um, wasn't occupied by Israel, that it was owned and kind of occupied by Israel's enemies. So most commentators believe that David could only take the head of Goliath as far as probably the outskirts of Israel. And we don't know what he did with it. A lot of people believe he buried it there, um, just kind of foreshadowing and predicting that Jerusalem would one day be the capital city of Israel where David is king, but he takes Goliath's head to Jerusalem. That's all the details were given. Most people way smarter than me rightly, probably rightly assume um, that he took it to the outskirts of Jerusalem and he buried it somewhere. Um, but that's an important detail that we'll get to in just a second. So that's the story. And the million dollar question that we've been asking every week as we've walked through these stories, as we've studied these different names of God, as we've looked at his attributes, is what do we do with this story? Like what in the world do we do, right? And here's the thing. Most people, you've probably heard this before, unfortunately teach this passage as Goliath is your problems, Goliath is your fears, Goliath is anything in your life that isn't pleasant or that you don't like, and you just gotta be David and you gotta go and slay your Goliath, right? You've probably heard that taught. It is a widespread teaching, um, and in fact, it's a very shallow interpretation of this passage. And in fact, I would say it's a flawed interpretation of this passage, that our problems in this life, our earthly circumstances, um, right, that those are our Goliaths and we just gotta be like David and we gotta go and muster up some confidence and go and uh, basically this is a pump up speech, right? That's how we use it in today's world. David and Goliath, you've seen the movie Hoosiers, right? Before this backwoods um, Indiana, I believe, basketball team goes and has to face one of the top teams in the state, they literally reference David and Goliath in their prayer, right? It's a pump up speech. 
Let's go slay our Goliath. Go be like David, right? Which is great if your problem is slow room service, right? If that's your problem, then yeah, you go, you go be David and you pick up your stones on the elevator down there to the hotel lobby and you let that Goliath at the front desk have it, right? Like that's all well and good. But what happens when our problems are something that we can't fix, right? What happens when our Goliath suddenly turns into the loss of a loved one or a cancer diagnosis or a car wreck, right? Let's be honest, we are all one phone call away from being in a tragically different situation, aren't we? Like we're one phone call away from our lives being drastically different. And there are circumstances and situations in this life, many that I've endured, many that you've endured, that it doesn't matter how much energy you muster up, doesn't matter how inspiring David is, you can't fix. One of those being our sin, right? Doesn't matter how many stones you got, keep trying. Doesn't matter how many, how much ammo you got, keep trying to defeat that Goliath in your own strength. Keep going. In fact, uh, a few guys that I disciple, um, and I don't say that arrogantly, a few guys that I meet with and they've asked me to kind of help them walk through the scriptures together and those kind of things. We're walking through Philippians. Uh, that's a whole nother cool story for another day. Um, but we meet together on Tuesday mornings and we walk through the scriptures together. And uh, we picked one passage, Philippians 2, where Paul says, don't do anything without complaining or grumbling. And we tried to obey one passage. Like, let's pretend that this one command, if we can just obey one, that it will save us, right? Our salvation will be achieved if we can just obey one command for a week. And we picked the one command. Don't do anything without complaining. And I told the guys, and we keep it pretty honest in our group and in our text thread and stuff, just throw up an emoji like handprint every time you fail at this. And it took an hour, right? Tops. I failed on the way home. Rush hour traffic, all those kind of things, right? Like we couldn't obey one command for a single day. We couldn't do it. If our salvation, if, if Goliath was our, was our sin and it was up to us to defeat our Goliath, there's no way we'd be able to do it. Doesn't matter how many stones you got. And there are other earthly circumstances, let's be honest, that are heavy and that are real. And it's people that have walked out on you before and didn't come back or it's a, a diagnosis that you weren't expecting to get. It's a tragedy in your family. It's showing up this Christmas without someone at the table this year. All those kind of things. And it doesn't matter how much ammo you got. If that's your Goliath, then good luck, right? In fact, kind of a funny story. There's a popular church um, in our nation today, a mega church that um, teaches some prosperity stuff. And they, they had this conference and they brought in one of these prosperity preachers to teach on First uh, Samuel 17, and he spent the first night talking about how everybody, the fact that you have problems in your life means that you're David. You've got Goliath in your life, so that must mean that God's picked you to be David, right? God's picked us all to be David. Um, and hyped everybody up, right? Which is so deceiving and manipulative because here's why. If I'm David and I can't defeat my Goliath, then who do I blame? Me. Right? If I'm the one that God's chosen to slay this giant and I can't, then I didn't believe enough, right? I didn't have enough faith. Then it's, if it's all on me, then all the blame, all the shame, all the guilt is on me too, right? Man, I must not be as good of a Christian as I thought I was. I must not trust God as much as I thought I did. I didn't have enough faith to slay this giant. I didn't trust, maybe there's some sin in my life that I'm not aware of that keeps me from preventing to slay this giant, right? So this guy gets up and preaches this message and then they didn't do their homework on the next guy that they invited to preach and uh, he spent the first 20 minutes of his message saying, you are not David, right? And you can imagine how awkward that conference got when the first speaker is telling everybody and hyping them all up and you're David, go slay your giant and then the next guy shows up and he says, no, 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 make no mistake, you are not David, and he's telling them the same thing I'm telling you, that there are giants in our lives that we cannot slay. We can't. 
Our sin being the top giant. Sin and death. Good luck, Davids. Try at that this week, right? Go and slay those giants. We cannot do it. We can't. And that's not the point of this passage. It's not a pump-up speech. You and I had a problem that we could not defeat. And God did not send us a pump-up speech. He did not send us a cheerleader, right? David didn't show up and say, guys, Israel's number one, right? Go and fight. He didn't do any of that. What did God send us? He sent us a champion. He sent us a substitute. He sent us someone to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Do you see that? This story of David and Goliath is pointing to a greater story of a greater David, a greater champion, a greater man between, someone that would stand between us and the wrath of God, someone between us and death, someone would stand between us and our sin. And that person was the son of David, a descendant of David, and his name was Jesus. That's what this story is pointing towards. It's pointing towards Jesus. The gospel is not Go and be like David. David's your example. Jesus is your example. Now go and save yourself. That's not gospel. And we could never do it. The gospel is God has sent us a champion. God has sent us a substitute and he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. That's the gospel. All throughout the Old Testament, we we. Keep going back to this verse. If there's any verse in Genesis that you need to know and to memorize, it's Genesis 3.15. Because as soon as sin enters the world, as soon as death enters the world, Genesis 3.15 happens and God shows up and looks the serpent in the eye and promises that a descendant of the woman, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. It's the first time the gospel is preached in the Bible. All the way back in Genesis 3. And what does the Bible do? What does the Old Testament do? All it's doing is just tracing the seed of the woman. You wonder why Genesis 4, Genesis 5, I believe. Yeah, not Genesis 4, that's Cain and Abel. Genesis 5, we get these random genealogies. Matthew 1 opens with a long genealogy. Luke 3 ends with a big genealogy. What are the authors doing? They're not trying to bore us. They're tracing the seed of the woman. They're showing that God came through on his promise that Yahweh is faithful to his promises. It's tracing the seed of the woman all throughout the Old Testament. We go from Abraham, we go from Adam and Eve all the way down to Noah. God wipes out the planet, but in his grace, he saves a descendant of the woman. Then we go from Noah to Abraham and all throughout Genesis, we're getting these genealogies. What are they doing? They're tracing the seed of the woman. And you go from Abraham, eventually you get all the way down to David, And from David, you get all the way down to Jesus. That all throughout the Old Testament, Israel, the children of God, they were looking for a descendant of the woman, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Isaac and Jacob and David to come and defeat the enemy. And we see that, and there are so many parallels between what Yahweh has done here and what Yahweh has done through Jesus Christ. We see David as our champion. In the Gospels, we see Jesus, the son of David, as our champion. We see David is from Bethlehem. Luke 2 opens, Jesus is born where? Bethlehem, the city of David. David is Israel's champion, his representative. David's victory is imputed to Israel. Jesus is our champion. His victory is imputed to us, Romans 5. Through Adam, through one man, we all sinned, but through Jesus Christ, we've all attained righteousness if you put your faith in him. He's our representative. He's our champion. He's our substitute. We see David divest himself of things on his way to battle. We see Jesus Christ divest himself of the glory of God as he comes down here onto earth. We see David comes in weakness. We see Jesus came not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve. We see David is found as a shepherd out in the field. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. We see David get mocked by his brother. In the gospels, what do we see? Jesus' own mother and brothers mock him. We see it all throughout the gospels. He's misunderstood by his own family. We see battles in the wilderness prepare David for this battle. What do we see in the gospels? Over and over again, where does Jesus go to pray? In the wilderness. 
Where is he fighting battles to prepare him for the cross? In the wilderness. The night that he's betrayed, where is he? He's in the wilderness, sweating blood, fighting a battle in the wilderness to prepare him for the cross. Over and over again, we see David take out the head of Goliath with his own weapon. What do we see Jesus do? He defeats sin and death. He defeats death with what? With death. Jesus Christ defeats the enemy with his own very weapon. Let me read it to you, Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. David destroys Goliath with Goliath's very own weapon. We see Jesus destroy the enemy with his very own weapon. David defeats Goliath with a stone. A stone. Jesus defeats the enemy with a stone, but it's a greater stone, and it's the stone that's rolled away when the tomb was empty, right? We see Jesus defeat the enemy with a stone. David takes, and here's where I mention this, David takes Goliath's skull right outside of Jerusalem. And this is interesting. When you combine Goliath and Gath, where he's from, you get Golgotha. And where is Golgotha? It's right outside of Jerusalem where Jesus Christ was crucified. And what do they call it? The place of the skull. This is where they got the name. The place of the skull. Whose skull is there? Goliath's. Right here where Jesus Christ won our victory. The place of the skull, Golgotha. You see, David's victory is imputed to the Israelites. Jesus' victory is imputed to us by grace through faith. David's reward is the king's daughter as his bride. What is Jesus Christ's reward? One of many is that we get to be his bride. He has rescued us, our savior and Lord, and he will come back one day for his bride. We see David goes on to be the king of Israel. We see Jesus is declared the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And here's what's interesting, and this is probably my favorite. After this battle, um, chapter 18 kind of begins. You can imagine the giant of the Philistines has been defeated, and David um, is famous now. He was a shepherd boy. Now he's the guy who killed Goliath, right? And you see these women start singing songs in 1 Samuel 18, and they sing, Saul has slain his thousands but David has slain his tens of thousands, right? Appealing, you know, just hurting Saul's pride. And here's what I want you to see. After this victory, you see the people sing songs about Saul killing thousands, David killing tens of thousands, and victory is defined as killing people. But when you read Revelation, and you read Revelation 7, it talks about how Jesus has saved thousands and thousands upon thousands from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And you get to Revelation 7 and it says, people from every tribe, tongue, nation gather around the throne and they sing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We're singing a different song in Revelation. And it's because Yahweh, Jesus Christ, our Lord, he saves he saved us. The gospel is not, Jesus is my example. Now you guys just go follow after Jesus and be good enough and work hard enough and save yourselves this week. No, the gospel is Jesus is my substitute. He's my champion. And he's done for me what I could never do for myself. Christ has overcome the giant of sin and death for us. Now Hebrews talks about we follow his example. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But why do we follow Jesus' example? We don't follow Jesus' example to save us. We follow Jesus' example because he has saved us. Do you see the difference? That's the gospel. Is I'm not imitating Jesus so he'll be pleased with me and so that he'll look down on me and he won't be mad at me. I follow Jesus' example because he is pleased with me through his son because he is pleased with me through the death and the sacrifice of Jesus. Do you see the difference? I'm not trying to save myself by following Jesus. I run after Jesus. I follow Jesus, why? Because he has saved me. And it's nothing that I've done to earn it, to deserve it. I'm a wretch. 
And God has stepped down. He has been my champion. He has been my substitute. He's fought the battle for me. And now I run after him. Hebrews talks about, let me just read it to you. If you've got your Bible, flip over there for a second. This won't be on the screens, I don't think. Um, Hebrews 2, what does it say? Therefore, I mean, or Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And that word founder in the Greek language actually means champion. Looking to Jesus, the champion of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's why we run. And through his death, through his resurrection, through his sacrifice, and now he has put his Holy Spirit in us, we do have the power to overcome sin in our lives by his spirit. It doesn't mean we just sit and do nothing, right? We run after him, we throw off the weight and the sin, as the writer of Hebrews says, we have a battle to fight. But we can only fight it because our champion, our substitute has won the greater battle. We don't have to go and fight to save ourselves. Now we fight for intimacy with Christ. We fight for the good of others, right? We fight for our own holiness. We fight for those things. But it is all in the shadow of the greater victory and the greater fight that Jesus has won for us. Do you see the difference? That's why we run. That's why we fight. That's why we struggle against our sin. And honestly, that's why we celebrate Christmas. Because if you notice in Luke chapter two, When Jesus is born, a host of angels show up. An army of angels show up to the shepherds. And I'll close after this, but I wanna read to you what happens. It says, and the angel said to them, Luke 2, verse 10, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Can you imagine an army of angels showing up? And rightfully so, they have to give the first line of most angels, don't be afraid, right? Like, fear not. I bring you what? Not a battle, not what you deserve. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, armies, praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In the gospel, the only way this can happen is because of the gospel. An army of angels show up and they sing peace. That's the gospel, is an army of angels show up and they don't give us what we deserve. Why? Because Jesus has taken on what we deserve. And because Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, because he's taken the sacrifice for us, an army of angels, Jehovah Sabah, the God of hosts, sends his host down to earth, and instead of destroying us, what do they sing? Peace. Good news of great joy for all people. And if you have never received Jesus as your champion, as your substitute, I beg you this Christmas, plead with you to put your confidence, your faith and your hope in Jesus. He has slain your greatest enemy, sin and death. He's slain it. In fact, think about all of our enemies. Think about all of your fears in this life. What are they? They're just little brothers and cousins of death, aren't they? Social death, financial death, relational death, All of them are. My fears, your fears, that's what they are. And you can endure those, you can go through those knowing what? That Jesus Christ has slain their master, Goliath, their champion, death itself. He's given us the power by his spirit to endure in this life, to overcome the sin in our lives. With community, with this church family, with the believers in here, the body of believers, with his spirit. If you've never placed him as your champion, I encourage you, I beg you today to declare Jesus Christ as the one who's won your victory. You can't defeat your own sin. You can't stand before God one day based on your own works. 
it will not work. But Jesus has defeated sin in your place. If you trust him by faith, he will change you from the inside out. He will put his spirit in you and you'll begin to walk in freedom. You'll begin um, to have victory over these struggles and these little cousins of death in your life only by his power and his spirit. So if you haven't done that, don't leave here. Without talking to me, talking to one of our elders, going by next steps, but talk to somebody. I wanna pray for us. I'm taking too much time, so I'm gonna give it over to the band and then uh, we'll get you guys dismissed. Lord, thank you so much for your word. God, I pray that if there's anyone in here that doesn't see you as their champion, God, that they would make that decision today. And for the rest of us, God, that as we endure the struggles of this life, the fears of this world, God, we, we have nothing to be afraid of. You've defeated our greatest enemy, sin and death forever. You've given us life. So God, help us to persevere, to endure, to fix our eyes on you. It's in Christ's name we pray.